Good evening. And thank you all for joining us here at the National Library tonight. My name's Catherine Favell, and I'm the Library's Director of Community Outreach. And one of the perks of my job is to be able to welcome you all here to the library, whether you're here with us in the theatre or perhaps joining us online through the live stream. Tonight we're going to be talking something about Lake Burley Griffin and that reminded me that the library of course stands on the shores of the lake but perhaps more importantly I was reminded a couple of weeks ago that beneath the lake's surface lies the bed of the Malonglo River, a river which provided sustenance to local indigenous communities for tens of thousands of years. I have to admit it's not something I think of every day so it was quite surprising to be reminded that there is this riverbed winding below the surface. As we begin, I would like to acknowledge those communities who lived along the edge of the riverbank, the Ngunnawal and Ngambri people on whose traditional lands we're meeting tonight and whose culture we celebrate as one of the oldest continuing cultures in the world. I'd like to pay my respects to elders past, present and emerging for caring for the land that we're very privileged to live on, to work on and to call home. And I'd also like to extend my respects to any First Nations peoples who are joining us this evening here or via the live stream. One of the other perks of my job is that I get to hang out with people like tonight's guests, even if it's only for a few minutes. And tonight I'm delighted to be welcoming Garth Nix and Felicity Packard back to the library. Garth, of course, is the award-winning Australian author who sold more than six million copies of his novels in 40 languages around the world. His first novel, Sabriel, from the Old Kingdom series, is on display in our Storytime exhibition, and if you haven't had a chance to visit that, I encourage you to take a trip down memory lane and look at the stories that you read as a child and that you're probably reading to your children and grandchildren and family and friends now too. Garth has been a champion of books, libraries and reading. You've got to love someone who can turn a librarian into a hero, as he has. And we were especially delighted when he agreed last year to be an ambassador for the National Library as we celebrated the 50th birthday of this building. Felicity has created a career putting words into the mouths of some of Australia's best actors. You may know her work as the writer for the drama series Underbelly, but she has written hundreds of hours of Australian television shows, such as the Stan adaptation of Wolf Creek, Janet King, Home and Away, Blue Healers, McLeod's Daughters and Anzac Girls. And I think the library would like to take a little bit of credit for some of that work, because we know sometimes the writing happens here in the National Library. One of the things these two world-class writers have in common is our city. Garth and Felicity have called Canberra home for large parts of their lives and attended school and university together. So tonight, we're pretty sure that these two old friends will have some very interesting stories to tell about their upbringings, their city, the lake and their careers. Please join me in welcoming Garth Nix and Felicity Packard. Thank you. Thank you very much. It's very nice to be here in Canberra looking out to so many friendly and closely related faces. Um, <laughs> it's always very, very, very good for me in particular to come back to, to Canberra. Um, so thank you all, all for coming along. And it's also great to be here chatting to Felicity, who uh, I mentioned to my mother this afternoon, who now lives in Queensland, but only relatively recently, 
um, that I was doing an event with Felicity this evening, and she said, don't forget to say, don't forget to remind Felicity that she was the first person at your third birthday party. Third birthday party. Third birthday party in the flats in Northbourne Avenue at Dixon, which Felicity tells me no longer... And no, no, they've been knocked no, down, those no. ones. Yes, yeah, indeed. So she said, yes, I remember her beaming little face appearing above the stairs. Oh, well, that's very <laughs> sweet. I remember your mother made finger puppets. They were so she cool. Did. And, uh, and actually, I think my seventh birthday party, she put on a puppet show of Moomin Midwinter See, that's, that's the sort of parents you need who really valued well, you know, and storytelling. You, and you had them too. And I yeah. think we... And this is one of the topics we, we quickly were scribbling questions down is to talk about our parents and, and, and their influence. But perhaps backtracking... Um, one of the other things we were chatting about before mentioning Lake Burley Griffin, and I think this probably speaks to the way both our minds work to some degree, is that, and this would be familiar to some of you, of the, uh, the, the, sort of the Canberra tradition of riding your bikes around at night uh, back in the, in the day, in yeah. the 70s and 80s. 70s and 80s, when there was less traffic and yeah. fewer roads to cross. And uh, I remember riding with, with, with Felicity and a whole bunch of other people, a bunch of friends, riding around the shores of Lake Burley Griffin, and I saw something in the water I was sure was a severed head. It looked like a head with long hair in the dark, just quite close to the edge. And, of course, I brought it to the attention of, of Felicity and, and our other friends. Yeah, probably. <laughs> probably. Yes, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not quite sure what noise I made. And I guess for some time we all thought that well, it absolutely. was... Absolutely. We were gazing severed, at it, at the hair yeah. waving in the water. Yeah. Won't surprise you to realise it was weed waving yes. in the water. Weed on a stone. Eventually <laughs> I poked it with a stick. Um, I'm not quite sure what would have happened if I'd poked it with a stick and it was a severed head. I... Um, but we, we were very sure, and I think possibly the two of us were more sure it was a severed head than, than the others. Yes. Because that natural tendency to think of, of story. Yeah. Overactive imagination. Well, which is a good thing if you're going to have a lifetime of writing stories. Uh, an overactive imagination is actually a, is a positive. Yeah, absolutely. Um, and look, I, I, mine developed... I grew up on, uh, at, at ANU. At my father was one of the heads of one of the halls of residence. And so I, we literally lived at ANU. And in those days, it was a much you know, quieter place even than it is now. And I just used to ride my bike all around the ornamental ponds and in the ornamental ponds, and I'd climb the fire escapes of all the buildings. I just had... I, I had a very lonely childhood in some ways because I'm right down the end of my family. But I, at the same time, that, that opportunity to just roam, freely roam and tell myself stories and, was and really imagine. powerful. And imagine. Mm. Yeah. I mean, I, I remember... Some of my sort of... I, I don't actually have a very continuous memory of my childhood, right? but I do remember certain sort of peak, peaks, I guess, um, including back to, to Turner Primary School, where we both, uh, we both went to, to primary school at Turner, or Turner Infants. Turner Infants. And then Turner Primary. Yes. Um, we were, we were lucky <laughs> that in, in year two... Well, actually, in year one, uh, both of us could already read. Again, I think a testament to, to, to our parents. Parents, yeah. Um, and so we're quite bored. And my, my parents were very grateful that our teacher and the principal recognised this and so didn't force us to sit in the class trying to learn to read when we already could, but just gave us jobs and made us feel important. We were the, we were the principal's assistants and uh, did really important stuff. Yeah, we had to carry messages. Yeah, and yes, pick over up... over to the senior school and yes, things like and, that. Yes, and pick up rubbish on the playground. I remember... <laughs> 
but it was it was an important role. Yeah. I, you know, yeah, I'm, yeah. I'm very grateful, uh, and I wish I could remember the principal's name. Uh, I'll remember it. You'll come back. It might rise to the surface. Stay tuned. It will come <laughs> up. Um, but one of the things I remember from I think second grade is leading a whole group of my friends on the oval next to Sullivan's Creek, uh, where I was describing being inside a pyramid to them and saying, now we have to crouch down to go through this part of the tunnel and jump across the pit and all this sort of thing. And they would follow and do what I was doing as I described it to them. And, and much, later, much, much later, I realised that that was really kind of a very early role-playing game, like Dungeons & Dragons, uh, where I was, I was inventing an interactive story for my friends in the middle of the oval, which must have looked very strange you know, from a distance, mm. these kids hopping and jumping and crawling along all in a row. And so on. no one ever asked us what we were doing. I guess that's a Canberra thing. No, well, no one ever asked what we were doing. Well, I mean, what, what other influences do you think growing up here had? Does, it, does Canberra appear directly, indirectly in your writing? Is it something that you return to, the landscapes, the... Where, where does it sit? Well, I think it's it's all an influence. I mean, you, everything's an influence. So everything goes in. Everything's grist for the mill. But but certainly, I think. I mean, maybe it's a, a part of the aspect of your childhood talking about uh, the, the opportunity to imagine and to do things by yourself. I mean, reading was a very big part of it, and I owe a very big debt, uh, which I always happily acknowledge to the Children's Public Library Service, uh, to the Public Canberra public library service and in particular what was then the children's library at O'Connor Shops uh, because I used to go past every afternoon coming back from Turner Primary going to my parents house in O'Connor and I would get a new book every afternoon I would read it that night invariably and I'd come back the next afternoon and ask them for something else by the same author and maybe it would be Joan Aiken or Susan Cooper or Robert Heinlein or Andre Norton any number of very, very formative writers for me. And they, and they wouldn't be in that tiny little library. That library was the size of a garden shed. Um, but it, it was a portal to, the, to a world of books. And they would, they would order the books in for me from the other parts of the library or from other library services if they needed to. And, and sometimes I would say, I want to read something like this author. And then they would, they would find books for me. And that was certainly part of... I didn't know it, but it was part of my training to be a writer. Did you use that library? I did, absolutely, yeah. absolutely. As long as going to the to the O'Connor shops and buying cobbers and... Uh, yeah. From Mr Sheedy. From Mr Sheedy, Mr. Sheedy. Yes. yeah. I think cobbers... We really were... had a very Canberra childhood. Uh, yes. And it was tough. It was very tough. Yeah. Um, two cents. Two for a cent, I yes. think. Cobbers, two for and a four, cent. And paddle pops were four cents. Yeah. I mean, I think that the dark side of that story is I, I believe Mr Sheedy committed suicide. Yes. But, yes. Um, so that's the underbelly... <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> underbelly side of the story. See how I segued into yes, that? Yes, indeed. So you're already being prepared to write underbelly. Yeah, well. Yeah. Except for I didn't actually know he committed suicide until many, many decades later. So that probably doesn't count. Um, but the library was, was, was really important. Yeah, yeah. And I think it's, it's part of that training. Um, what, what about for you in, in screenwriting terms? Do you think the things you, I mean, you watched, what, what sort of sticks around as being formative or well, I mean, later maybe? Or? That, a little later. I, I, mean, I, I mean, a bit like you, I always loved writing stories. I was, English was by far my best subject at school and it was the one that I just went to. And I, and I wrote stories at home um, all the time. I just, that, was, that was something I did and I had a very active imaginary friend 
you know, kind of <laughs> squadron. Uh, at, but screenwriting actually came came later, not until I was in my 20s. But I do remember a particular moment when, I th when the world of screen storytelling opened up to me. It was 1977, and my, the brother up from me had been to see a particular a film, and, he said, and he said, I, was, I was 12 or 13, and he said, you've got to come to this film with me. So he 1977, took, I think well, I... What are we, 14? No, yeah, 14. 14. Yeah. I, we're, I can, we're literally almost the same age. 1977, <laughs> it's a magic number. I think a lot yeah. of people know what that might yes. mean. And uh, so he took me along. Mum dropped us off in Manuka at the old Capital Cinema. Beautiful. Remember the Capital Cinema? Mm, Don't yep. we grieve the Capital Cinema, how beautiful it was? Dark deco and... You know, angels and cherubs all over the place, and sat down and Star Wars began. Now, I don't count myself among a Star Wars fangirl in that, in that really powerful sense, but in the, this is, we're talking the original, the very first Star Wars. And so you have the scroll up the screen, the, the crawl up the screen, and then the little spaceship comes across, and then this giant spaceship came across, and it fills the screen, and it goes on and on and on for what felt like minutes, and I... I, I, my, my jaw dropped and I thought, how can anything be that powerful? That, that storytelling moment, that, that I just plunged headlong into that world. And I, in a way, that's, I thought I want to be, I realised now I wanted to be part of that world where you, that, that big picture and you could just immerse yourself. Not that I wasn't immersed in novels as well, but, but that moment, I, that was very, very powerful for me. Though I didn't actually become a screenwriter till I was 26, you know, 27, something like that. It was much later. I well, you were a screenwriter yeah. at university. Yes, course, we, did some, we did so. do some... Yeah, I did, we did... Uh, Garth and I went to the University of Canberra together and we did the creative writing, what was then called the professional writing degree. That, that degree. was yeah. surprisingly random because... I mean, I, this is a question I wrote down because um, I didn't see you after the end of school. I mean, I worked for a year in the public service here. I was a pay clerk. I still, in fact, remember the codes for changing someone's salary because <laughs> back in those days, it was just writing codes on giant computer forms in triplicate. 10040 would change someone's salary forever. Um, <laughs> and we also updated leave on little cards in cabinets. And uh, it was very Dickensian and quite a, uh, a soul-destroying job in many ways. But, <laughs> but I was saving money to, to travel, which I then did, and I travelled and I, I came back. And in the course of that time, I've been thinking about what I wanted to do. And I thought, and, and during, well, when I travelled, I, I wrote some short stories. I wrote half a novel, because I hadn't yet learned that half a novel doesn't count for anything. Finishing <laughs> stuff is actually what it's all about. Now, when, when you finish something, you create possibility. So anything can happen once you've written a whole novel, a whole screenplay, or whatever. If you write half of something, you got nothing. But I hadn't learned that then, so I wrote half a novel. And I looked at it a few years ago. It wasn't actually terrible. It, it wasn't any good, but it wasn't terrible. So I could possibly have fixed it up and maybe got published even earlier than I did. But I came back and I, and I was thinking, I do want to be a writer, but I'd read enough about you know, writers' careers and about publishing and inform myself that I knew I needed to, ha I probably, I would certainly need a day job and I would get a better day job if I had a degree. So I thought, I need to do a degree, what will I do? And I, thought, and I was looking around, the University of Canberra, which was then Canberra CAE, had the only writing degree in Australia, I, mm -hmm. I, I think. And so I thought, oh, well, that, that, will, that will combine things very well, so I'll do that. And I applied for that and I got in. 
first day at university at what was then Canberra Say, I saw Felicity. And I hadn't seen her for two years. So, hi, Fizz, what are you doing? You know, what, what, are you, what are you here for? What are you in for? <laughs> um, not quite like that at that stage, day one. And uh, she said, professional writing. And I was like, oh, I'm doing that too. Yeah, it was amazing. So, and, uh, and it was a great course. And uh, learned a lot of things, not always from what was taught, but, uh, but uh, it, was, it was very educational on many levels. And uh, a lot of writing was done. Yeah. Well, I think, you, I think the thing that certainly I got most out of it... I mean, I, I got a lot out of the, the, the academic stuff and the, 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 the assignments and all of that. Learned to meet a deadline, learnt to write to a brief, learnt to write across a whole kind of range of forms of creative writing. But mostly I got gas back, which was very good, but also a, a bunch of other friends who also thought that telling stories was an important thing to do and it was valuable and that they wanted to talk about and they would talk about your work and you could talk about their work and they accepted um, you know, criticism and feedback and you'd accept criticism and feedback and it was really, that was the biggest thing that came out of university yeah. for me, that, that, yeah. that there were that cohort of, of fellow writers and that was very, very exciting. Being yeah. in the company of writers is invaluable, at that, yeah. particularly at that time. I think, and we also got some paying gigs, yes. writing stuff, yes, which I'm astonished to find that Felicity actually still has the script of the first paid screenwriting work was, that we did. It was not good. <laughs> well, in, in, retro, in retrospect. It was not screenwriting as such, it was well, stage, stage writing. I apologise, yes, yes, yeah, stage yes. writing, yeah. We wrote a, uh, a, a theatre restaurant. Theater restaurant piece for the Southern Cross Club. It was about. Uh, we, it was a commission. They came and commissioned us. But uh, it was about um, two young guys from Canberra travelling the world on a plane, and it was called Take Off. <laughs> I, I think and fair to say two complete idiots yeah. from Canberra travelling travelling the world. And it, it consisted mostly of a lot of very bad puns. Yes. And yes. I just looked at it then, and I, I thought there was a couple. Of, I read a couple of immortal lines. One of which was, "Haven't you seen any old buildings before?" No. Uh, I haven't seen any old buildings before. Haven't you been to Bungendore? <laughs> I mean, to say it was parochial. <laughs> yeah. It was playing to an audience. It was playing to an audience. But it was, you know, it was, it was quite well paid. Um, and certainly for students, being paid to write stuff was, was fantastic. And indeed, being paid to write to a brief. Like, it yes. was not the story either yeah. of us or the person we wrote it with, um, Andrew Etheridge, would have chosen to write. But, yes. but being... I, I, I write to briefs all the time. Well, I it like was it. very far from what we would have chosen to write. <laughs> I think, and actually, probably particularly Andrew, who, who sadly passed away in, in 2012, um, who was a very uh, cerebral... Uh, deep-thinking poet, um, <laughs> being you know, but he, but he he, he, he got also, to the swing of it, yeah, and he had his and he he got totally into the funny the funny side of of rewriting lyrics from uh, popular songs for our duo of of, of fools. Um, so that that was a good experience. That was great. Yeah. That was great. And then of course after university, you and I ended up in the same place again. Dalton's bookshop. Oh, Dalton's bookshop. Remember yes. Dalton's bookshop. Dalton's Anybody here remember dear old Dalton's? In, in the big store in Greemer Place. Yeah, where yeah. Land Speed Records is now. <laughs> yeah, which was which was a great experience. I mean, yeah. uh, it's probably a cliche, I guess, of you know arts students, writers ending up working in a bookshop. We, but it was a good it's, one. There's a story to be told there, I guess. Many of the people we work with have become writers and artists, and yeah. uh, it was almost a breeding ground for uh, for creative people. Yeah. And uh, it was a lot of fun, and it was very educational. 
uh, particularly for, for me because I then went into have a sort of dual career in publishing and writing for many years before I, I was solely a writer. Um, so it was very good, very good training ground yeah. for that. Where, I'm just going to backtrack a second because I keep forgetting to ask you this. Where actually were you between the end of high school and okay. University of Canberra? Because um, I still don't know. Okay, so for a like, like, like I love Canberra. I live here, and I've you know I've, I grew up here. We've raised our children here, but I did need to get away. <laughs> Yeah. And after I finished um, uh, at Dixon College, where we both went, we're in the North kids all the way, uh, I took off to Europe and I was there for two years. Okay. And I just, I lived in London, I travelled in Europe a lot and I lived in Edinburgh. And when I came back, um, I actually enrolled at ANU and lasted 10 days. Okay. Because then I had to do a tute paper and I thought, I'm out. I'm not doing that tute paper. <laughs> so, and then I um, worked as a gardener at Duntroon for some, for some time because I, I got a job at, um, gardening at Duntroon. And no, then I luckily, remember luckily that, a friend of mine, not Garth, another friend said, you know, Felicity, you quite like writing. Why don't you do a writing degree? And I thought, that's a good idea. I'll do a writing degree. And so I, that, that's how you get to talk about a career plan. No. You know, I just, she just said, oh, you know, there's, there's this writing degree. So I thought, oh, that's a good idea. I'll go and do a writing degree. And, and, and the rest is and, history. But, well, yeah, as I say. Okay. But that's kind of how I got into screenwriting too. I didn't, I, I loved, you know, I, I, I thought I wanted to be a novelist at the end of um, uh, University couldn't write a novel to save myself. Now let me just put that out there. You but, never know until uh, you try. But another friend of ours who finished the degree a couple of years after us, um, a guy called Michael Miller, he went back to Sydney where he was from and got work on GP, the medical drama on the ABC, and he started off you know, making the making the coffees and doing the photocopying and worked his way up to being a, a script editor and then he started writing and then he came up. He used to come and visit us in Canberra and he um, showed me some of his work and we talk about it and I really enjoyed like that, that form, the screen form. And he said, well, why don't you have a go? And so I did an observer spot with GP and finally got a gig and went on from there. So, but I only ended up in, as a screen... I probably... I don't know what I'd be doing. I think I'd still be mowing lawns at, at, at Tom well, you might, you might be, had You might friends. be writing as well. Um, it's, it's interesting. I, I mean, I, I love Canberra too, but I haven't lived here for, for 30 years, but I easily could have. And, and in fact, it was various times I tried to move back and and uh, without success uh, for all kinds of mainly work-related reasons. But it does, it's an interesting question. Uh, you've sustained a, a very successful career uh, in, in screenwriting from Canberra. And it would have been harder, presumably, back in the day. I mean, now it doesn't really matter so much where you are to a degree. Um, but how do, you, how do you think that, that sort of affected getting started? And uh, so look, I mean, in the early days, when you, I would literally finish my script or the scene breakdown or whatever part of the process I was doing, I would print it and I would put it into an envelope and go down to the Ainsley shops and pay for a, for a stamp and send it off to Sydney. Those days have long gone. Um, I used to travel to Sydney for work a lot. I would, dry, I would set off um, in the morning and drive up there and uh, stay overnight at friends' houses or whatever I needed to. When I worked for Home and Away, which I did for many years, I would just drive up and back in the day. Um, and that, that was just how it went. I mean, I've now, at a, well, for some years now, I've been um, at a stage in my career where I say, 
if you want me, I live in Canberra, and you're going to have to fly me. <laughs> and so I now fly uh, uh, you know, where I need to go. And I do still spend a lot of time out of Canberra. Is the face-to-face still as important, oh, even yeah. though you're still del- delivering everything you know, electronically you, and I so mean, on? I mean, any but... project that starts... Uh, I, I tend to always write collaboratively. I mean, I've, all the projects I've developed, I've developed with somebody else, um, just because generating that amount of material I, for... for you know, 10 hours or 8 hours or 6 hours is, is difficult. I, so I, I really res- I've been very fortunate that the people I've worked with, really um, two, two people, the people I did Underbelly with, I've worked with for years on different projects. Uh, and so, I, yeah, I really need... But even if it's not with them, I really need th- th- those early... Well, everyone does, those early yeah, stages yeah. Of, of brainstorming around a table and um, uh, yeah, then plotting, you know, when you're all having to, you know, Put your heads together and figure out what happens and what the order in which it happens, and especially because you're generally leading. You know, episode one finishes here, so episode two has to pick up from it. So you mm. you need to all be in the room together, and that's I really value those uh, you know times away. Whether it's usually if you're plotting, you're plotting for a week or so, because the rest of the time you, you would know writing's fairly solitary and in, well, it's an introspective. In- <laughs> well, it is. It's an interesting comparison between being a novelist and being a screenwriter. I mean, writing for screen is collaborative all along the way, and of course, what you're creating is an intermediate yep. document, which is then going to be used for a very collaborative enterprise to create what's on the screen. And if you're writing a novel, you, you mostly are just doing it by yourself. Though some novelists do a lot of backwards and forwards with their editors and so on. I'm not one of them. I'm actually a very secretive writer when it comes to prose. I don't share it with anyone until it's done to my satisfaction, or, or in fact, I'm just wearied of it and I have to get rid of it, which is almost the same thing. Um, <laughs> and then I send it to my agent and, and editors and so on. Um, but it's, that is quite different. But I, I also can work in the collaborative mode as well. I mean, we've yeah, worked we've together, together yeah. and I've worked with other people on, uh, on various things. And I like that as well. It's, it's just different. Um, yeah, you know, that's true. And look, I mean, screenwriting is much more collaborative in the sense that you, at the beginning of the, the development stage, you work together. But when I think of myself as a screenwriter, I mostly think of myself alone in my study, staring at the screen, making stuff up. Well, <laughs> you know, well ultimately, it always, it always yeah, comes to that, it doesn't it? It comes to that, yeah. and that's where, yeah. Yeah, that's where the, the hard yards are done. And then it's like when I go to Sydney or Melbourne or wherever we happen to be working out of and I get to talk to other people about it and it's like, oh my goodness, that's so exciting. And there are other people who care about this stuff too, which is really It's good lovely. to have both, I think. Yeah, it's very yeah, nice. It's good, it's to, very have, nice. good to have, have, have the Though I do admire and, and kind of envy, like, you, you, you have no one else to refer to, which is both terrifying and gratifying. There's a, there's a control thing which is very appealing. Yeah. Um, in, in that you can basically you know, do whatever you want, which is not necessarily the case uh, in screenwriting. I mean, ultimately, there is, of course, editors and there'll be backwards and forwards. Um, but generally speaking, uh, a good editor, and I've been an editor in my publishing career, and one of, one of the things that makes a very good editor is knowing when not to do anything and is also always realising that the book, ult- the book ultimately is the author's. And so if they really, really want to do something that you don't agree with and you think is a big problem and it's going to make the book worse, you have to let them do it in the end. Um, and I'm actually thinking of one particular example from when I was an editor where this foolish author would not listen to me about the ending. 
and he's paid the price. Yeah. But uh, <laughs> also, I could have been wrong. But anyway, um, but yeah, ultimately, you, you can say, no, this is this is my work, and I want it to be this way, and. That's the way it will be. Well, I, I used to teach, for many years I taught screenwriting at the University of Canberra and one of the, the first lecture I would give in the introduction to screenwriting was always would talk about the difference between prose and stage and screen and the, I think students most got it when I talked about when you, uh, as if you're a, a prose writer, you are the author, you are the authority. Yes. Whereas a screenwriter, you're a hired hand and generally they don't even want you on set if they, <laughs> if they can do without Or to exist at all, yes, actually. Yeah. Yeah. Which is actually why it, when I later in my career I've been able to be a producer as well has been very, very nice important. because then yep. you, I or even from underbelly on I, I got I've had carriage of my episodes all the way through which yep. is really nice so you get to see them from when you start talking about them right through to you know they're finished they're finishing the yeah. editing process and post-production I mean this is an early lesson too if your work is being adapted for screen um, because the only control you have if you're the original author of the prose piece is whether you sell it or not because <laughs> once they've bought it or even yeah, optioned yeah. it, they can do whatever they want. Yeah. And that, that, that realisation comes quite hard to some people and, and it can be a horrible realisation uh, on many different levels from being totally shafted on a bad deal. Um, and I heard about an awful one recently where uh, a very successful series, television series, which is based upon um, a couple of books, has actually delivered nothing to the author because oh. she, she did a deal without an agent uh, and, and really just the worst thing in the world. But also they completely changed everything yeah. too. Um, and, and that's how it works. And, and this was brought home to me very early on, I think in the sort of mid-2000s when I was at, on one of my sort of various many times discussing Sabriel and the other books in Hollywood. And I had a meeting uh, at a studio where the producer wanted to actually... Loved, loved, loved everyone. They all loved Sabriel. Fantastic, beautiful, wonderful, incredible book. It wasn't Donald Trump, but it sounded like it. Um, and, but the only thing was they wanted, to change, they wanted to change the setting to contemporary America and they wanted to make her a kindergarten teacher <laughs> who, who could just go into death. Uh, and I, it just so utterly changed the whole nature of the book that I realised instantly that I didn't want to have anything to do with these, these people. But if I had, in fact, done a deal with them, they could have done that and that would have just been yeah. the way it was. and then that's it done. You're never yeah. getting it up again. Yeah. yeah, so the only control, all your control is before you do a deal. After that, it's, it's anybody's story. But I've been story. very impressed by you. Garth and I have been working, I, he asked me and I said, oh yes, uh, to, to help um, adapt. Well, to, work, to write with me. To write, to write yeah. with Garth um, at a television adaptation of the Old Kingdom series. And which we've done, and that's that's another story which perhaps Garth can tell. Well, we we should probably set the, the okay, scene for that because when the, um, the Old King has been books. set up, in, I mean, for a long time it was all our focus was on feature films, and so at different times it was set up with different people, and uh, you know, it came closest in 2010 when I it was set up with Plan B, which is Brad Pitt's company, and I did the rounds in Hollywood, and we had a director attached. I was co-writing with Dan Futterman, who wrote Capote. He got an Oscar nomination for it. We had the whole package, and we were doing the rounds of the studios, and that that was very interesting because there was a lot of there were very a lot of keenness. Though it's always very hard to judge how real that is. One of the things that came out in the course of all those meetings, which was very interesting, was that they were all very concerned about when the man came in. 
very different from, from today. They didn't think that a fantasy film with a woman main character could carry the weight of the film. It's like, when does the guy come in? It was a constant question, which was very dispiriting, of course. But ultimately, it didn't get set up that time. And then as various other times, it was almost set up as a feature film. But then about three years ago, I thought, well, there's so much great work ha happening in television. Uh, now, maybe it's time to actually look at trying to set it up as television and adapt it as television you know, for one of the streamers, possibly. Um, and I had the brilliant notion of calling Felicity and seeing if she'd be interested to work on it with me because I'd, I wanted to be involved in it, which is not always the case for my, all my books. Um, Frog Kisser, for example, is being adapted uh, by Fox, now Disney, as an animated musical. I have really nothing to do with it. They keep telling me they're going to send me the script, but never do. Um, and I, and that's, I knew that going in, that that's what it would be. But the Old Kingdom books, I wanted to be involved. And luckily, Felicity wanted to come on board. And uh, we wrote a, a Bible for a, a series, which is really a, a background document yeah. uh, about it all, and outlined a pilot. And then uh, my agent in, in Hollywood took it around. And there was lots of interest. And ultimately, Amazon Studios came on board. They optioned the books. And they commissioned us to write a pilot. And... Uh, that was a good experience. Yeah, we had great fun. Um, though, up though, until the moment when they, they decided not to do it. <laughs> <laughs> but but you. So that's the scene. Now we come back to. No, Felicity I just to wanted to say that one of the things that really um, impressed me about you, you said about uh, particularly about the Old Kingdom because it's very very dear to your heart and um, yeah, as you said, I think it's what twenty years work. You know, across the whole yeah, more across now. the whole yeah, um, yeah. series was you weren't going to do it at any price. Yeah. Like the, the, the trick, because it's so compelling and so attractive, the idea that, oh my gosh, somebody wants to make my book into a TV series or into a film. And you just think, oh, I'll sign anything. And, and you have always been very careful not to. Well, you it's, know? The, it's, the same, it's the same trap for an unpublished manuscript as well. Yeah, you exactly. have to resist the, blandish, the, the blandishments and look at the business. Um, I think it's, it's, and I learned, and I, and I educated myself with that very early on, and then working in the business. But the same principle applies on an even greater level with film and TV, because the capacity to be horribly treated is even higher. Well, the, the money is so enormous. I mean, mm. it, or the you it, not getting millions it. Millions of dollars per episode. Yeah, yeah. you not getting it. Is no, actually, you don't get yeah. the money. Well, no, but you <laughs> might get the money. But the potential for you seeing lots of money being made and you getting none of it, yes. none of it is so much higher. Yes. Um, but yes, it's 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 important. Um, but that was that was it was great to great to work on, and um, we actually worked on some of it here um, downstairs. Yes, over yeah. in the, the the gray area. As if we now <laughs> did you know it was called the gray I, area? I thought it was called the brown room because it's sort of browny orange, but you know, I clearly got it wrong. Anyway, yeah. the cooperative working area over yes. there, whether it's the brown room or the gray area. But or... I worked. I, uh, Greg, who I wrote Pine Gap with, he and I did a huge amount of our work over there. They should put Just, a little yeah. plaque up. I think. <laughs> Have a plaque in the in the room, you know. <laughs> Screenwriters have written here. Yes, yeah. indeed. Fine gap was written here. Yeah. <laughs> now, where are we with our with our questions? We, we are going to go to audience questions in a, in a little while. So, um, everyone has to have a question in their mind at this point. Yes, <laughs> or indeed. Or not, as the case may be. Uh, yeah. I mean, I, I suppose I'm also interested in what effect your parents had on you. I mean, your we have similar parents in some ways, but but also very different. Sorry, a little yeah. visual gag there. Yes. Parents. Um, 
Um, yeah, we, well, we did have similar parents in many ways. Yes, I think yours read more than mine, but anyway. Is that, yeah. Oh, my mother read, my father wasn't much of a... He read geography books, but not... Oh, you know. Know, interesting. I mean, that yeah. makes sense. He was such an adventurer. Mm. He'd be out and, and doing things. But then my father was, you know, is still uh, very uh, into the sort of the, the natural world and getting out in it as much as possible. But they both were massive readers. Um, they had enormous influence. Um, yeah, I guess lots of similarities. My father, uh, you know, professor... A scientist at CSRO and then a professor at ANU, um, director of the Centre for Resource and Environmental Studies. Um, I'm often reminded of him in the current moments, and he's, he's, he's alive, he's fine, he's living in Queensland, for those of you who might know Henry. Um, his health isn't as wonderful as one might like, but, um, but Henry and Catherine are, uh, are living near uh, Yandina. Uh, they moved from Canberra about 10 years ago. Uh, they're both Queenslanders originally. Uh, so my father was a scientist, my mother is an artist, uh, and I think, you know, I've got things from both of them, mm. and, and b but they're both big readers, and interestingly, both readers of science fiction and fantasy, and I think that was a very big influence, because it wasn't, I, I think back in you know, the 70s and 80s, that wouldn't necessarily have followed, and one of the things, my father did a lot of work in the US, and he every time he came back, he would bring back lots of American paperbacks yeah. of you know classic science fiction and fantasy that wasn't uh, necessarily published here. No, not not yeah. at all. And I think my mother reading fa more fantasy and science fiction, but also reading both. Uh, you know, the example coming from both sides, I think, was a very positive, yeah. a positive thing. And just and, and of course being read to as a as a baby and a child. Um, I quite often like to quote the fact that I've read Lord of the Rings younger than anybody else ever. <laughs> because my mother was reading it when she was pregnant with me. <laughs> and so you I, went into yeah, I absorbed it. Yeah, I absorbed it. <laughs> I absorbed it in, in vitro. Um, but, but they also, I mean, they read, the, they read The Hobbit and Lord of the Rings to us when we were very young, um, and, and many other books, and of course, Moominland Midwinter Puppet Show and, oh, yes. and things like that. Uh, so I, I think that bookish influence was extraordinarily strong. Um, so the library, the books at home... Uh, all of those things, uh, yeah. you know, fed into uh, into a love of books and writing. And I think from your father, would you say that a love of the natural world too? Because you, I mean, yeah. in, in all your books, place and landscape tends to feature. Yeah, though I have a much woollier notion of it than my father, because as a scientist, he knows the no, names he's very of everything. He knows yeah. the names of everything, and I'm like that nice bird with the colour here. And <laughs> of course, you know, not, not only does he know what it is, he knows the Latin name, and he can also do the call, you know, <laughs> of, of both genders, so he can summon the birds to him and so on. So he's more like he's a magician. He's a wizard. <laughs> he actually is a wizard, really, in that regard. And I'm a sort of like failed apprentice, um, but I can write. A, I can. I mean, I'm much better at writing uh, about these things than... Uh, but my descriptions and so on, they're all... They, they come from my head rather than from life. So if you, if you said to me, write a description of a pied butcher bird, I'd be totally stuffed. But if I was inventing one, I'd yeah. be fine. Yeah, yeah. But, yeah, certainly the, the influence of both of them, I think, uh, is, is you know, in the reading... And in, the, and in the creative work too, because my mother as an artist was always creating work, and so I saw, I saw that, I think, from a very young age, making things and creating art, and that, that's a, as a viable 
way so of having a good life. So they never wanted you to be a lawyer. Apologies to the lawyers out there. <laughs> they, well, I mean, I think, and this is something I've noticed, particularly with, with, because of, you know, I have children now, and I compare my early, my childhood, and particularly my teenage life to theirs, our parents had no clue what was going no. on. And also, we were riding around the lake. Well, it's not just the riding around the lake, the it's the, the drinking and the stormwater drains and all that. So just, they were so hands-off. Yeah. Um, and I think this is a feature of the 70s. Um, Maybe our parents in particular. Well, and I also think they were busy. I think that's another good example that they gave was that they were doing stuff. Yeah. They were always doing things. Uh, and it wasn't just their, their jobs. They also were always engaged in intellectual and artistic pursuits. And I think having that role model mm. uh, of just being doing stuff and and wanting to make things uh, was very important. Mm. Mm. And for you? Oh, I mean, like your parents, my parents uh, migrated here. Yours came from or Queensland. Mel- Melbourne or Queensland. Mine Via were, Melbourne, briefly. Ma- mine were economic migrants from New Zealand. Uh, and I think... Yeah, I mean, they both worked. My mother worked from the... I'm the youngest, and she went back to work when I was four and a half, going to preschool, going to Hague Park preschool. Hague Park, We yes. seriously are inner north people. <laughs> uh, and, yeah, I mean, she, I think she she was the reader. Dad, my father was the sort of person who would pick up the Lord of the Rings and then put it down three days later, having not slept. Yeah, he, didn't, he, you know, he, he could only do things... Yeah, he was feast or famine. Was it, it the maps? Reading. Was it the map that drew no, him in? He just, no, he just would... If he, he wasn't going to start a book until he could finish it, in one right. sitting, more or less. Which would be quite rare well, opportunity, yes, I imagine. very rare. Whereas my yeah. mother, um, she, she, she got to the stage later in life where she would always have whatever book she was reading with her because life was short and you never knew when you were going to get an opportunity to keep reading your book. So she just took it wherever I'm with you. she went. I'm with you, she mum. would put it in her bag. She said, you might get stuck in a traffic jam. And so, yeah. Yeah, so I really learnt the value of, what of did, reading. What did she read in particular? Look, she read a lot of Margaret Drabble and A.S. Byatt and um, uh, Margaret Atwood. My... She'd read a lot of um, uh, Agatha Christie. She read a lot of all the, all the big um, uh, sort of crime writers. She loved Dorothy Marjorie, Sayers, Dorothy Marjorie, Sayers, Ellingham, Marjorie yeah. Ellingham, loved Naya all of Marsh. that. Yeah, Naya Marsh yeah. being a Kiwi. Um, but the, I think in some ways her biggest influence on me is one of my two favourite writers, Garth notwithstanding. Um, she read Earth, Ursula Le Guin, and when mm. she introduced me to Ursula Le Guin, my, a bit like Star Wars, my eyes opened up to another whole way of seeing or not just fa- a, a fantasy world or a science fiction world, because Ursula can move seamlessly mm. between the two or have both in the same, the same piece of writing, but the, um, a kind of honouring of the female experience without it being flag-waving, it was just there. It's just there. I, seriously, I could talk forever about Ursula Le Guin. I, I cannot uh, pay her enough respects as a beautiful writer. And, and, and I think she just... When I saw my mother reading The Left, uh, no, the left Hand of Darkness and The Lathe of Heaven, which had these incredibly scary covers, they've got weird sort of spaceshipy covers and they're grey and mysterious and had very beautiful but mysterious titles, I thought, I want in on that. You know, and They're wonderful that books. Was I mean, her, wonderful books. Her, and I think her, my mother yeah. reading those really powerfully. Because I read those before I got to the Earthsea ones, which are the more traditional okay. way into yeah. Ursula. But I, well, they're all fantastic books. They're I mean, all great. Her ability to deliver philosophy through story, I oh think, is unrivaled. Yes. And I didn't realise that as a child. I mean, yeah. I mean, I 
you just you just absorb it and uh, enjoy the story without realizing you're getting so much more yeah. at the same time. I'm a big fan of Le Guin as well. One of my proudest moments at University of Canberra is when I was teaching the unit on the novel was elbowing other stories, other novels out of the way to put the dispossessed on the reading list. Oh, good, <laughs> excellent. Oh, that's oh, yeah. a, it, was, it was really good. That's good yeah. to be able to do that. Yes, indeed. Now I think we are actually at about 18 minutes too, so. Shall we move to we questions? Are, uh, have we got, we got more... Away. No, no, more we can segue into that. Have we, have we missed anything crucial? Well, I'm sure there's all kinds of stuff here. Mm. Just talk amongst yourselves while I read it. <laughs> no, let's, let's move on to, let's move on there, to questions from question? the audience. And we can always come there's back to ours. There's a microphone over if, here if you have a question. Yeah, hands up for, hands up for questions. Yes. There we go. There we go. We'll take this one. This gentleman's just bringing you the microphone because it's being... Sorry, just wait. There's a microphone coming. A lot of the literary world uh, seems to look down a bit upon fantasy. And yet, oddly enough, when you get readers' polls, you know, the best book of the millennium was The Lord of the Rings. The people refer to Harry Potter and, and so on as, as wondrous achievements in literature. And yet, somehow, fantasy doesn't quite make it. Well, I think times have changed quite a lot. I, I agree that for a very long time, I mean, genre fiction in general, and so not just fantasy science fiction, but also... You know, detective stories, romance, horror. horror, they're all sort of seen as being a bit subpar. But I, I do think, I mean, particularly for fantasy and science fiction, uh, you know, it's moved far more to the mainstream. And so some of that, that sort of looking down has largely disappeared. I mean, I, I find it interesting myself uh, as a practitioner of these, these tawdry things um, <laughs> that... Over the years, I've felt it change, like at writers' festivals and so on. And also children's and YA is often seen as lesser as well, even though often people's favourite books are their childhood favourites and the ones that they remember their whole lives are not you know, necessarily literary classics, but they're their favourite childhood books. But I think that's kind of changed as well. But interesting, and maybe this is a sort of reflection of our society in general, I noticed some, you know, some years ago that the more successful you are, the more that goes away as well. So <laughs> it's kind of like being successful transcends the looking down the nose stuff, uh, which, you know, is very welcome, but it, but it is kind of pathetic at the same time. Um, but it's, there's far less of that now. I, I, I used to see it much more, particularly at literary festivals, where, you know, you, you're mixing together a lot of different writers and critics and commentators and so on that... Uh, people would, would want to know what you wrote and once they found out would not be interested in you anymore if you wrote fantasy and science fiction and then children's and young adult as well. Oh. It's like the double whammy. But I do think as our culture's changed, and this applies to screen stuff as well, mm. uh, that's, that's, that is lessening, fortunately, for me. Because mm. I, I do think fantasy and science fiction in particular has come much more to the much mainstream. Much more into the mainstream. Um, I think I, I would... It's always been in film. There's always been filmed a bit, but I think the Lord of the Rings trilogy, Peter Jackson's Lord of the Rings trilogy, made was a huge um, uh, sort of game changer in terms of what people thought. And then, of course, Game of Thrones. But I don't think Game of Thrones would have happened without the Lord of the Rings. I think yeah. that, you know, the success and the enduring success of that, and the, this kind of the the fandom that that's, uh, the, those that trilogy spawned, made HBO think, oh. What's this, you know, who's this George R. R. Martin person? Has he got a good story? And it to wasn't tell? greatly reduced by the awful The Hobbit. No, so, no. Which, so, so no. Don't worry about, yes, Peter Jackson. Let's forget The Hobbit, yes, but yes. you know, yeah. the movies, I mean. Yeah. yeah, absolutely. Another question. 
We've got Liz. Thank you, Stuart. One in the yeah, middle. Yeah, thank you. Yeah. And then we've got the. And then in the middle behind. Yeah. yeah. Thanks. Um, I have a question for each of you, if that's okay. Um, of course. So Make mine easy. <laughs> <laughs> well, I wanted to ask you about. Um, it sounds like the process for trying to get um, the Old Kingdom trilogy, well, books onto the screen has been quite. Um, full of disillusionment at times. So I was sort of wondering what keeps you going, why you don't decide to sort of just put that aside and focus on something new, since it has, you know, obviously been a, a more than 20-year project. Uh, well, so. well, I do. It's, 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 it's one of the many things that, that I have going on. Uh, and actually, that's, it's a good question because I think it's very important not to be focused on any one thing in a writing career. So it's it's important to be writing new things. It's important not to be wondering what's happening to the old things. Um, I actually, I mean, The Keys to the Kingdom is in development with a, an American uh, production company. Uh, Frog Kisser is, is being developed by Fox and Disney, um, and it's sort of slowly progressing. They have a script and other things. Um, the Old Kingdom's sort of come and gone at various times. Uh, other of my books have, have been optioned or... Uh, they've had you know, various directors wanting to do them and so on. Uh, but that's that's all secondary to my main occupation, which is simply writing books and stories. Um, and in fact, I have a new story out today on Tor.com, uh, which I'm, I might as well mention. Um, just uh, uh, is a story that came into my head out of nowhere, and it's set in, so in the Soviet Union after World War II, um, and is so not necessarily something you would think I would write. Um, but I love writing short fiction. It's one of a number of short stories I have out over the next 12 months. Uh, that's called Dislocation Space. And like all the fiction on Tor.com, you can just read it online. Uh, Tor.com is probably now the biggest, it's the most widely read and the highest paying market for fiction probably in the world, for those writers amongst you who are interested in that sort of thing. So I'm always writing new things and then trying to do something with the, other, the old things is, is important but it's not what I it's not what I focus on, um, except there are times where I have to focus on it very intently. But then back to the other stuff as well. Um, and getting dispirited, I think, really depends upon your expectations at the beginning. Um, I've always been very realistic, uh, and I've also always tried to be very well informed about how things work. Uh, and I've worked in the industry. I've been an editor. I've been an agent. Um, so I hope that I have very re realistic expectations. And so the, uh, the, the incredibly long haul to try and make things happen in that world, uh, it doesn't dispirit me, actually. Um, or it does occasionally dispirit me. But it, it doesn't last because I, I guess I, I have a realistic viewpoint of and it. And you've got other things going on. And I've got a, and, and which harkens back to it's very important to have other things going on. But you've got a question for Felicity, yeah. Yes, thank well, you. And I will check out tour.com later on tonight. Um, <laughs> Felicity, I was just going to ask you, you talked quite a bit about um, writing to a brief. So I guess I was interested to hear if you also enjoy writing to your own brief or do you do, you do that kind of writing at all or do you prefer writing, you know, for a particular project? Uh, well, I have several projects of my own devising or that I've devised with other people out there, <laughs> out there, like Garth, yeah, out there, yeah, you've got various things going on. I love doing those. Um, I've spent most of my life as a freelance writer, so, and it, it, the reality in Australia, as a freelance screenwriter, the reality in Australia is, for, for most of us, that means working on other people's projects. 
and um, whether that's Home and Away or MDA or Blue Healers or, I mean, Underbelly is a different thing because I really helped devise that. By the time Underbelly came along, from then on, I've been very much involved at the at the very beginning of the project and I've had that opportunity. So even though Underbelly is based on real events and there were books notionally that we optioned and we worked from and things like that, I, I there's so much, for me, there is so much creativity that goes into any project, even even indeed an episode of Home and Away. You, as a writer, you've got the, the, you know, the, the pressure is on you. They want you to write to that brief, but they want you to do more than that. You know, if you only write to the brief, then you're not going to last very long. They always want you to be slightly surprising. They want you to do something just beyond it, but not too far beyond it for home and away. So, look, I mean, in, I, I'm, I often think of ideas, and I, but I tend to develop them with other people. And also for TV, which I'm, I'm, I'm very much a TV writer, not a film writer, you know, I have got... I don't tend to do a huge amount of... I don't write scripts on spec. I, I wouldn't write a whole script on spec because it's. I know how much work it is, and I'm. I know that you, it's not likely to get you over the line unless you've got other development documents first. So I will spend time, you know, working on those development documents and thinking of the story and doing. It doesn't have to be very long, but I'll do that sort of work first, so that you end up with sort of 15, 16 pages, outline of the series, outline of episode one, outline of the characters. Tell me about the world. Tell me about the theme. That sort of stuff and then try and sell that, or try and get money in, trying to get somebody interested to give me some more money, or me and my fellow writers, to give, um, to give, to give money to write a first draft. Because the first draft takes, you know, six weeks, you know, of something like that, you know, bills to pay, <laughs> you know, that sort of thing. So I, I, I don't write on spec as such, but I'm constantly, you know, trying to develop new things. But I also, I'm, I've got a gig at the moment working on another, on, a, on an existing project, not mine. And I've had a great week in Melbourne, you know, plotting that and developing that. And it's, that's, I find that just as much fun in lots of ways and less pressure. <laughs> Thank you. Anne-Marie? Felicity. Yes. Um, when I was watching Underbelly, uh, I thought... How can such a well-brought-up young woman <laughs> know such appalling language? And I was wondering if you used as consultants criminals or policemen or both uh, to advise you on the scenarios and the language, the appropriate or inappropriate language to use. Well, OK, there's a couple of ways. Yes, yes. I mean, in all the seasons of Underbelly, except Razor, which was set back in the 30s, so nobody was alive, um, left. We would always talk to whoever would talk to us, really. Um, yeah, the Victorian police talked to us for se Series 1, but then they didn't want to talk to us after that because they got in trouble. Um, the, the New South Wales police talked to us um, for some of the seasons. It, uh, so we, we would talk to um, hangers-on uh, of the criminals. Most of the criminals were dead or in jail, so we couldn't talk to them. You know, uh, so, but we... Did we? Con I mean, I, I think a lot of it you pick up the vernacular. <laughs> you know, you, re you, you, you listen to how people talk, and you, you, you and, and I heard transcripts of Roberta Williams talking to her children from phone taps, which was an eye opener. Um, 
But I have to say that you give an actor the chance to swear and we would put one swear word in a speech and they would add ten more. <laughs> they just love the opportunity to swear. So you might have one F word and they will add seven. And then you have to say, please, please, just, you know, don't ad lib. Can you just say them? Because, you know, even Channel 9, who were very excited about Underbelly, would, would get so many complaints that they, they'd try to pull back. But... Look, I just enter into the spirit of the thing and enter into the characters and, and go for it. You know, I'll, I'll try I'll, it. I mean, it's, it's an imagination. I was actually just going to say, yeah. I mean, after Turner Infants, most of that vocabulary would be, <laughs> would be oh, there. Would be there, wouldn't it? Yeah, <laughs> yes, indeed. Playground duty at yeah. Turner Infants, you get all those words. Yeah. <laughs> Any others? Nope. Yeah, go on, go on. Young man would like to ask a question. Yep. Sure, um, go go ahead, please. The keys um, will Keys to the Kingdom become a movie? Ah. Keys to the Kingdom has uh, been optioned by a company called Hershend Entertainment in the US, and at the moment they're trying to attach a director, and they have a, a short list of about a dozen directors, all, all of whom are fantastic. Um, and their plan is, once they have a director attached and possibly some other elements, as they call them, then they're going to uh, get to work on a screenplay. Um, Felicity and I are actually attached to work on it if they can get it set up, so which would be great. Um, but there's, there's so many uh, pitfalls along the way. So it's got to sort of stage one where it's kind of in play, but it may not proceed. So, um, Hershen have made a bunch of children's entertainment, but actually mostly what they do is own theme parks in America, including Dolly World. They're, they're in business with Dolly. They also own the Harlem Globetrotters. So, they're kind of a strange company, but I like them. Um, and uh, I like the, the, the executives in their, their, their film side. Um, so, it's very hard to tell right now whether that will go on or not, but at least it's at that first in that first step. It has been set up once before uh, where another company, uh, actually a studio, was working on it, but then they ultimately let it go. So that, that often happens with, with books and with actually all kinds of, of screen projects where sometimes even uh, a screenplay is written, as in the case with um, The Old Kingdom where we wrote the pilot uh, for Amazon Studios where they pay, they pay for a whole lot of stuff to be written. Sometimes they even pay to make a pilot and they still don't then proceed and show it or make the series. So there's a lot of steps along the way. So I'm, I'm hopeful that it will be, but I, I, I can't make it happen. I can just cross my fingers and hope that you'll cross your fingers too. And, and of uh, course, the, the Keys to the Kingdom is, your, it's being set up as a TV series, uh, not yeah, as a feature. As probably as, well, as seven 90-minute television films, like um, streamed films. So for, you know, like Netflix or or you know, um, Hulu, Hulu, or Apple, you know, any of the, the 10 million, Amazon, any of the, 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 same, the, the numerous streamers. But the thinking at the moment is it would be seven 90 or 100 minute uh, effectively films but shown. One per book. Yeah, yeah. one per book, yeah. Which is your favourite book out of The Keys to the Kingdom? Do you have one? I always like to ask this question because there is no one book that everyone always chooses. Lord Sunday. Lord Sunday. Interesting. Interesting. <laughs> Thank you. Good. That's not, that is not the, 
it, that is actually one of the least chosen, but it's still very interesting. Go you. Go you. Thank you. Yeah. <laughs> and it's the end. Very yeah. important. Thank yeah. you. We could probably squeeze in one more question. One more. Yeah, absolutely. If we have one more. Lucky last question. Don't feel any pressure, but it better be good. <laughs> Are you meanie? I'm a meanie. I do my best. It's just my mean side's coming out. I'm obviously feeling relaxed being in Canberra, and I can, I can, you know, make these comments. I apologise. Both of you have um, spoken about your parents and the kind of influence they had over your work. Um, I'm curious about what your parents think about your work. <laughs> Sorry. Um, that what your parents have said to you or comments they've made about your work that they've either read or seen and um, whether they try and do that parent thing of giving constructive criticism. <laughs> well, unfortunately, my mother died before I became a screenwriter. It's one of the great regrets of my life that she never got to see anything I wrote. I mean, she'd seen a few short stories that I had published and things like that, but that, so that's very sad for me. My dear father, my dear father, he, he watched Underbelly under great sufferance. <laughs> he really didn't understand it or understand why everyone was so unpleasant. He quite liked GP. Um, he, uh, he was, he, 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 he didn't, I think those were the only ones he really watched. He, and he, I don't think he saw all of Underbelly. <laughs> he, he sort of would say, oh, yes, yes, I watched it. There were some people with guns. You know, <laughs> it was that sort of thing. So um, he... Look, I, I think he was delighted. I don't think he got it. <laughs> but he, he did say that he understood more about opera than television. So, you know, I, I, he was... I think he was happy. I think he, he certainly respected it um, and but uh, but he never he, he wouldn't dream of offering any criticism I don't think because he didn't really engage he, he was proud in a sort well, of vague more way. opera perhaps more op more yeah. opera where is the Verdi that's what he would say yeah. <laughs> um, my parents have been just totally supportive uh, ever since I got started right way back to my very first stories um, Though interestingly, sometimes things emerge that are uh, like going back to Keys to the Kingdom. Mr. Monday begins with the hero Arthur on a cross country run. He's an asthmatic and he passes out. And uh, luckily for him, uh, Leaf goes to get help. Uh, and I actually base that on, on my life uh, at Turner Primary. I'm, I'm an asthmatic and I'm this, I can smell the smoke coming in and starting to worry about it. Um, I was an asthmatic then. I didn't have asthma for years and years and years until I started writing Keys to the Kingdom when it came back. <coughs> Careful what you write. But I was talking to my mother about Mr Monday and she was telling me she enjoyed it, being very positive as usual. And I said, oh, well, you know, in the beginning where Arthur passes out from has asthma attack and passes out, that was like, you know, in fifth grade when I passed out in a cross-country run. She was like, what? <laughs> apparently, I, apparently I never mentioned it. And I was like... Did I tell you when I was knocked out with a softball bat in sixth grade? It's like, what? <laughs> you know, so, but no, they're, they're, they're incredibly supportive. And in fact, they have, they have a much more extensive brag shelf of my books than I do oh. in, in there. I don't actually have any in my house really to speak of. I, sometimes I have to go looking for them if someone asks about them. Um, I, I have a separate office where I, I have some. But, um, so yeah, they've, they've been enormously supportive of uh, my, my, my whole writing career. None of that go be a lawyer or no. anything like that. No, so and I certainly never got that Mind you, if either. I had been a lawyer, I think they would be super supportive of that as well. Somewhat surprised, but... Possibly, <laughs> yes, yeah. So, yeah, no, I'm very grateful for them for many reasons. 
Thank you. Thank you for your great questions this evening. And thank you both for a conversation which I think has done for us what perhaps being at uni did for you in providing a wonderful space to talk about stories and the value of storytelling and culture and how we should do more of it. On that note, I would like you to do three things for me as we wrap up and we move towards the Christmas season. The first is that I'd love you to give the gift of Australian stories to your family and friends. And lucky for us, the bookshop is here to help you do that. <laughs> and even luckier, Garth is here to help us do that. His, his books are in stock. We've got a special discount for you tonight. And you may even be able to convince him to sign the books for you. It won't take you. any convincing. <laughs> All the your Christmas un, the gift rare issues unsigned are sold. copies of my books are quite valuable. <laughs> mm. The second thing I'd like you to do is to give yourselves the gift of Australian stories as you relax over the summer. Read, watch, listen, enjoy the stories of our writers because if we don't look after those stories and those storytellers, no one else is going to do it for mm -hmm. us. And the final thing I'd like you to do is join me in thanking tonight's wonderful storytellers, Garth Nix and Felicity Packard. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. upstairs.